A challenge for preachers is always topics. What topics will you speak about? What topics will you preach about? Obviously, you want your sermon topics to be something of interest, something that people will be interested to hear, to learn about. Many times, you seek to preach about things that you feel are needed, topics that are needed by the congregation as a whole. Sometimes you preach because of a topic that you feel may be especially needed by one person in the assembly or maybe a few individuals. And that's the way it's going to be tonight. The sermon tonight is directed toward an individual who needs this. And the individual who needs it is me. And so I'm going to preach a topic tonight that I need. It may be that you need it as well. And so I invite you to listen as I preach to myself, especially tonight. Many of us are concerned uh, about the recent election. This past week, we, we witnessed the inauguration of a new president, president, and many of us are concerned about the outcome. Uh, was it a fair and honest and legal election? There's lots of concern about that. I know many of you have expressed such concerns. And furthermore, what will the policies of this new president and, and all those in his administration, what what, kind of, what will these policies that he plans to enact, enact, what will they do to our country? We're concerned. We're, I think, reasonably concerned. There is reason to be concerned. Tonight, I want to talk about how God has mandated uh, our response to this election and to a new president and all that's involved in that. I want to suggest to you that, that the Word of God addresses that and that we can be taught and learn concerning those things. Thanks for being here tonight. We appreciate very much that you have come out on this rainy Sunday night to join together in worship. Uh, We appreciate the encouragement that you provide to the rest of us by virtue of being here. Thanks to our visitors. We're glad you're here. Uh, Thanks for all the encouragement that we gain by being able to assemble together. How are we going to address this? Well, I want to start out by calling up a chart from a lesson that I preached several months ago that described the Roman emperors of the first century. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the detail that we had in that lesson, but just a quick review of the emperors of the first century time frame. Uh, there were some really bad actors in this group of Roman emperors. Uh, there were some very evil, wicked men who served as emperors of the Roman Empire. Uh, in the first century, the first of those would have been Octavian. He was given the name Augustus, which means revered. Uh, that name was also applied to the Caesars who followed him, but he was the first to take on the name Augustus, revered. He was the Caesar who was on the throne when Jesus was born. Following him was Tiberius Caesar. He was ruler during the ministry and death of Jesus. We'll comment about him maybe a little later in uh, the lesson. But he, this Tiberius Caesar was the ruler when Jesus was preaching and teaching. When he died on the cross, Tiberius Caesar was on the throne. He was followed by his great nephew, a man by the name of Caligula. And Caligula was widely regarded, even in that time, and certainly historians since then have said that guy was crazy. He was actually literally certifiably mentally ill. He was a bad guy. 
he was assassinated and his uncle took the throne. His uncle was Claudius Caesar. Uh, He was the ruler on the throne during much of the early work and ministry of Paul. But just talking about bad things that happen in these kind of corrupt environments, he was poisoned. Claudius Caesar was poisoned by his, get this, fourth wife. He was poisoned by his fourth wife. Now, the reason why she poisoned him was because she wanted her son by a previous marriage to be able to assume the throne. And that's, of course, what happened. You know this guy's name, Nero. Nero was a very bad person, a notorious persecutor of Christians. Remember, it was Nero who likely set the fire in Rome himself. It was terrible fire in the city of Rome that that destroyed a large majority of the city. And Nero blamed it on the Christians. Very likely he had set the fire himself. Nero Caesar was, was probably the one who was responsible for the execution of Paul and possibly Peter. He was followed by three in pretty quick succession, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius. Then came Vespasian. He was ruler of uh, ruler on the throne in Rome when Jerusalem was conquered and destroyed in 70 A.D. Uh, it was his son, Titus, who was the general who led the Roman armies in the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he later assumed the throne in Rome. And so Vespasian was the father of Titus, but he was also the father of the next Caesar. Vespasian had another son whose name was... Let me go back. Vespasian had another son who was Domitian. Uh, and, and he was a very vicious persecutor of Christians. This guy allowed himself to take on the title Lord and God. He expected to be called Lord and God. By all accounts, even by historical accounts of that day, and certainly those who've written about him since then, called him a literal monster. He was such a bad individual. He was murdered by members of his own staff. So, just a quick summary. The emperors of the Roman Empire in the first century, bad people, some really bad people. But what I want you to do for a moment is make a comparison with the 46 presidents of the United States. Joe Biden was inaugurated on Wednesday, the 46th president of the United States. I want to tell you in that, we we just talked about the corrupt, horrible history of the Roman Empire. I want to tell you, if you do much reading about the 46 presidents of the United States, there's a a history there that is ripe with political corruption and with moral misconduct. There's just absolutely no doubt about that. I don't want this to be a boring history lesson, but just a quick summary of some of those presidents. Warren G. Harding was described as an unrestrained womanizer. He sold political favors to his friends. The rather famous Teapot Dome scandal happened during his administration. The Teapot Dome was a a, a section of government-owned lands in Wyoming that was rich in petroleum reserves. And the Harding administration took bribes to allow their cronies to have access to those petroleum reserves without competitive bidding. Prior to the Watergate scandal, 
more recently, the Teapot Dome scandal was considered by many historians to be the most scandalous thing that ever happened in United States history. It happened during the reign, uh, or during the reign, it happened during the, the uh, term of Warren G. Hardy. He was, we said he was a very bad womanizer. He was so indiscreet in his sexual affairs that it's believed that his wife poisoned him. Officially, he's recorded to have died of a heart attack, but many think that his wife actually poisoned him. Well, that, that, that almost sounds like that could have been in the Roman Empire times, doesn't it? When you think about what happened with Warren G. Harding, one of the very bad presidents of the United States. Ulysses S. Grant, though he did not personally gain, his administration tolerated widespread graft and corruption during the time of Reconstruction, after the Civil War, when there was the Reconstruction of the South. A lot of graft and corruption that took place in U.S. Grant's term. William Harrison, he died of pneumonia just 30 days after he was inaugurated as president. A lot of people think, this is kind of an interesting footnote in history, many people think that Harrison got sick because he had such a long inaugural address And the weather was just absolutely foul. And he fell sick shortly thereafter and died within 30 days uh, of pneumonia. Herbert Hoover is widely believed to have prolonged and made worse the Great Depression by the failed economic policies that he put into place. Franklin Roosevelt had a 30-year-long affair with his wife's social secretary. In fact, she was at his side when he died. John F. Kennedy, one of his biographers, said that he was like a man possessed when it came to sexual immorality, uh, that he was just consumed with such evil. A man possessed, said one biographer. Lyndon Johnson had a 20-plus year affair that resulted in an illegitimate son, Bill Clinton used the Arkansas State Police to arrange dozens of affairs when he was governor of Arkansas prior to being president of the United States. That's just a sampling. And if you want to do just a little bit of reading, you can find a whole lot more bad stuff about the presidents of the United States. All right, so someone says, so what? What's the point of all this? Well, here's our point. First century Christians... We're living under a corrupt government. So are we. Now, what inspired instructions did they receive that are also applicable to us? They lived under a time of a corrupt government with bad governmental leaders. We think we do too. So wouldn't you think that what they were told to do in those first century times under those Roman emperors would certainly be applicable to us living in the present day, when we think that there's a lot of corruption going on. What were they told to do? What, were, what are we told to do? Let's start out with that text that Stephen read for us just a few moments ago from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So, Paul urged prayers, petitions, and even thanksgivings be made for all men, and in particular, for all who are 
in authority. Well, that's what we need to do. I want to tell you, that's, that's going to be a pretty hard pill to swallow. When, when we have such great concerns about the recent election and about the new administration, I want to tell you, that's going to be kind of a hard pill to swallow to pray for these individuals, to even be thankful in, in various ways for these individuals. Let me ask you a question. Don't you think it was hard for those first century Christians to pray for those Roman emperors? I imagine that was pretty hard too, don't you? Very hard when they were actually being physically persecuted by many of those emperors. And so uh, we should pray, especially when we feel uh, that our president may not have been honestly elected. And when we're very concerned about the policies that he's already announced that he's going to pursue, it's going to be a challenge, but we need to be praying. Now, what do we pray about? Here's the main thing. Paul didn't say pray about the economy. He didn't say pray about foreign policy and national defense. He didn't say pray about immigration. Now, I think those things and a whole lot of other, we could list a whole lot of other things that are big concerns to us, and they are important to us. I'm not denying that they are important to us. But what was the focus of the prayers that the first century Christians were to make and that we should making that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. And so the main focus of our prayers for our governmental leaders should be that we will be able to freely exercise our religion, that we will not be inhibited in regards to the things that we do religiously. We need to assemble. We want to pray that there's no restraint on our assembly. We want to be able to teach what the Bible says. Uh, we don't want any restraints on that. Pray that we will not be restrained. We want to be able to openly condemn sinful conduct. We want to be able to preach about things like homosexuality, same-sex marriage, abortion. We don't want the government to in, in, impede us in doing that. We should pray about that. Uh, we, we need to... Try to convert lost souls. We pray that the government would not stop us from this important work that we do. That we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so these things are really a a concern. These ought to be our greatest concerns, by the way, that we just mentioned. And what we do about that is pray. Pray about that. That's how we, we we should react. That's how we're instructed to react. Look at another text. 1 Peter 2 beginning verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. All right. Here's a key word for us, submit. We are to be in submission to every ordinance of man. And so we don't get to pick and choose, you know. I think there's probably a pretty good chance that the incoming presidential administration is going to enact some ordinances, some rules and regulations and laws that we probably don't like a lot. But we're told to be submissive to the civil government. That's our, that's our rule. That's the law of God. Now, of course, we understand that the great caveat to that is 
what the apostles said in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. If they, if they, if they enact laws, regulations, or rules that would, if kept by us, force us to violate the, the commands of God, we obey God rather than men. We understand that. But w- with that caveat stated, our rule is to be submissive to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Notice, he says, this is the will of God for us. It's God's will that we do that. And then the last phrase here is a significant one to us. Honor the king. Many of the men who have been previous presidents of the United States have not been personally honorable individuals. We understand that. But as we pointed out uh, earlier, neither were a lot of the emperors of the Roman Empire. They were not honorable people. And yet... Those Christians were instructed, and we thus are instructed to honor the king. That is, that we're commanded to honor the position of authority which they hold. And we need to do that. I want to confess to you a personal failing that I'm not sure that I've always done that, in particular in the way that I've spoken about some of these elected officials, past and present. Uh, We need to be careful that in what we say and how we act, we are showing Uh, a degree of honor, not necessarily to honor the corrupt practices of evil men. Uh, You know, uh, Isaiah condemned those who would call evil good. We're not going to do that. But we should respect the office of authority that they hold. That's a challenge. I want to tell you, these verses are very challenging. But I ask you again to remember, those first century Christians would have been tremendously challenged by these notions as well. Then one more text, Romans chapter 13, beginning verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. Ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake, for this is... For this cause pay ye tribute also. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Well, notice, be subject to the higher powers. There's that idea of submission, subjection, obedience to their rules and so forth. Again, with the great caveat that we mentioned from Acts 5.29. Notice the reason why ye must needs be subject not only for wrath's sake. What's he mean by that? He says, be subject to the higher powers because you will, ha- you will be punished if you do not. And so the wrath that he's talking about is the wrath of the civil governor who may punish us if, we, if we're not obedient to the laws and rules that are laid down. So be subject not only because you're afraid that you might be punished, but also for conscience' sake. In other words, this, this has to do with our spiritual standing before God, that we are going to be held accountable. If we're not appropriately subject to the higher powers, then God will hold us responsible for that. Uh, That's really significant, I believe. Then he says, render, uh, he says, for this cause, pay ye tribute, uh, honor, or render therefore to all that do, tribute to whom tribute is due. We would say taxes. Pay your taxes. I have, through the years, known some Christians who argued that we should not 
pay our taxes. The reason being that the government takes some of those tax dollars that we pay and then they turn around and use those tax dollars to do things that we don't agree with. Not just we don't agree with them economically, we don't agree with them morally. For instance, some of our tax dollars are used to, to support the practice of abortion as as reprehensible as that is, as disgusting, as sickening as the whole idea of abortion is to us, the government uses some of our tax dollars to further abortion. That is totally disgusting. And so I've known of Christians who said, I'm not paying my taxes because I can't agree with how the government uses the money that I pay in taxes, and therefore I'm not going to pay my taxes. Well, don't forget... The the premise of our lesson tonight is those first century Christians were challenged in the same way. The Roman government, in the collection of its taxes, was using tax dollars to do some really horrible things. Uh, And so the Christians of the first century were not excused. You don't have to pay taxes because this is a corrupt government. They were not excused, and neither are we. Pay your taxes. And then there's that word honor again, honor, to whom honor is due. And so, uh, that's an important text for us also. Would you agree? It was addressed to those Christians living in first century times, but it's applicable to us as well. We are dealing with some similar thoughts, perhaps, that those first century Christians had. So, what are we going to do concerning our new president? How will we react? I believe as servants of Christ, there are several things that we ought to do. Some of them come from those verses that we just studied. Pray for those in authority. Prayer is a powerful tool. And we ought to use that tool of prayer in lots of ways. And one of the ways is that we need to use that tool of prayer relative to our civil government. Uh, Again, especially that they will not prevent us from being able to pursue godliness as we know we must. Uh, and so that, that should be a regular prayer for us. That should be a daily prayer for us. Pray for the civil government. Even though it's not the government we wanted, even though it's not the people we wanted to be in office, they are in office and we should pray for them. Again, drawing our motivation from those very first century Christians. Pay your taxes. Tax season is upon us. I know Nancy knows about that. And others who work in the tax filing business, it's going to get busy for them. It's going to, and it's going to come upon us that we ought to make, got to make sure that our taxes are paid. Got to do that. We can't avoid that. Very generally speaking, obey the laws of the land. That's our, that's our job. Again, with the exception being we're not going to obey a law passed by men that violates the law of God. But other than that, We've got to obey the laws, even laws that we don't personally like. Then, let me suggest to you some some other principles that I think are really applicable. One of the things that we need to do is to live righteous lives. Look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. You know this statement, I know. Romans 14, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We can help the situation in this country. We're very concerned about where we're headed. We're concerned about the future of our country. We're concerned about where our country is going and how it will be for our children and our grandchildren. What can we do? 
Well, one thing that we can do is, is live righteous lives. That's, that's going to be a help. Uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we would be like salt and light if we lived the way that the Lord wants us to live. Live righteously. That's important for us personally, but it's imp- and it's important for us as a church, but it's important for our community and our nation that God's people live righteously. Speak out and teach God's truth. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 46. Psalm 119, verse 46. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. And so don't be ashamed to speak out the truth of God. Now there's going to be, I really believe that there's going to be some pressure on us to not speak the truth on certain issues. And I, I, I am convinced that it's not far off wherein some of the things that we are called upon to teach from the Scripture will be labeled as hate speech by our government. Keep speaking the truth. Speak out. Teach God's truth. Uh, again, notice, I will speak of thy testimonies even before kings and not be ashamed. If we had a chance to have an audience with President Biden, we could tell him we should not be ashamed to tell him those things, to not be ashamed of God's truth. And so don't stop saying what needs to be said. Don't stop teaching and preaching what needs to be taught. And then finally, I suggest to you that it is, it is possible for us to criticize the failures of government Again, I think we got to be careful to show respect. That's a, that's a necessary observation that we already mentioned. But I think Jesus set a, pre, a precedent for us. Look, at, look in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 32. Uh, back up verse 31. Luke 13, 31. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto Jesus... Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. We think this was, uh, this, uh, this was a real threat to his safety and well-being. And he said to them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Uh, so, did Jesus show respect? I think he did. He didn't violate the godly principle of respecting and honoring those who hold high office. But Herod was a corrupt man too. Herod, of course, a sub-king under the Roman emperor. But uh, he, he held the position of civil authority. But Jesus certainly was critical of the way he had conducted himself. Go tell that fox, he said. And so I think Jesus sort of set a sort of precedent that we can we can criticize the failures of our government but when we do that and as we do that don't forget the, the instruction honor the king well we got some challenges before us i am absolutely confident uh and just thought that maybe we could gain some strength and encouragement by considering that we are not the first christians who ever had to deal with something like this that in fact all through the history of God's people, they have had to deal with corrupt governors and kings and civil authorities. And there's instruction in the Word of God that gives us guidance about how to handle that. I needed that lesson, and maybe you can benefit from it too as we move forward. 
and to whatever the coming days may bring upon us. Thanks for listening so carefully. We're going to sing a song of invitation. As we sing this song, we'll simply ask, is your life right with God? If it's not, we urge you to do what you need to do to make that right. Obey the gospel plan of salvation. If you're not a Christian yet, be restored seeking the with, through confession and prayer. If you need to, to seek the prayers of the saints, let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song.